it. All right, we're in Exodus. In Old Testament, we were in Exodus uh, all week. Uh, where I stopped today was right before the Ten Commandments, right? We're moving right up to the Ten Commandments, not quite there yet. So we went all the way from Moses confronting Pharaoh to right before the Ten Commandments. So let's start with questions or insights you have, things you noticed or questions you have about what you read. Miss Head, yes. Was he was Pharaoh there when the Red Sea was parted or was he not? They this text is a little ambiguous there. Um you know, I'm trying to think in ten, in the movie Ten Commandments, do they show him there? He's above them, right. I've seen the Ten Commandments, but it's been a little while, all right? They don't play it at Easter every year anymore, okay? So, well, maybe one night we'll just watch it. It only takes three and a half hours, right? It's one of those that comes on on comes on at 6 o'clock and ends at 10.30 or something. Um, Cecil didn't like short movies. Um, it's a little ambiguous there. Um, there. You know, there are some biblical scholars that have tried to go back and find if there was a king killed by drowning, if they can find that in the Egyptian record. Uh the point, whatever happened, whoever was there, was that a major catastrophe happened for the Egyptians and that God was victorious. So that's a good question. Other questions? And I'll, I'll be honest, if I don't know, I'll say I don't know. All right? Other questions? Yes, Ms. Halls. <laughs> what, tell me where it is, Jenny. I mean, I know the date, but tell me the Scripture verse because I don't have mine up here. I've just got the... Yeah, that idea is that there there were some of the Jewish tradition that believed that meant that the firstborn of the womb were to become priest or that were be given over to the Lord literally. The idea there is that you dedicate that child unto the Lord in whatever service the Lord requires of him. And so it was not, uh, when it says uh, 13, 11, after the Lord brings you in the Canaanites, he promised you were to give over the Lord the first offspring all the first males of the livestock belong to the Lord. A good example of that is uh, when we get to First Samuel, when Hannah prays that prayer of dedication, and then she takes, she has the child, and she takes him to the temple and gives him over. Um, the idea just simply was the firstborn male child was to be completely dedicated unto the Lord. That didn't mean that you didn't have other children that were, but it just passed on that tradition of the firstborn being of major importance. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that, the sacrifice there does not mean kill. Uh, it just means to give over, right? What version are you reading there? Just interesting. Yeah, does it have the version over there? Okay, yeah, because um, it doesn't even use the word sacrifice. And I've got the NIV, but I've got the updated NIV. It uses give over. So they probably had some of that confusion when they did that. Let me let me just say a couple of things. I've had several questions uh, off of Miss Jones' question last week about Exodus four. I've had some other questions about it this week. So let me give you um, make another run at that. You know where where I know this was in last week's reading, but where God comes to kill Moses. Okay, I found a, a guy that was brave enough and preached a sermon on those three verses, uh, and so. Uh, he, he had some interesting insights, but there were a couple of things that, here's the thing, I think he says better in his points what 
he says it better than I said it, all right? And so here's what he says that Moses had to learn. And the first was that the rules applied to him. In Genesis we read where God says, Every male child shall be circumcised unto the Lord. And yet he had a male child that was not. And he said, Moses, everything applies even to you. The second thing this pastor said is that Moses learned it was never good or you had a good excuse to compromise. And that he had compromised for whatever reason. We talked about that last week. Maybe Zipporah didn't want him to be circumcised. Maybe because she was not Jewish. Maybe uh, which there's an interesting thing that happens with her and his family when we get into the reading for this week. But that whatever reason, it's never okay to compromise. And then this was the interesting one that I liked. That um, he said that Moses had to learn that his private life had to match his public life. Um, that what was known in his household had to match what he was asking of the Israelites. He was about to go in there and say, we're going to take, and this is part of the rules, and yet his private life wasn't matching that. And you all know and have seen and know people in national figures that their private life doesn't match their public life. Huh? And you all know people that their private life doesn't match their public life. And so it's a... Does that that help a little bit with that whole issue? Okay. If not, good. All right, we'll move on. We won't be back there. Miss Brenda, yes, ma'am. Yeah. King Nefertiti, what'd you say? She's not in there. Cecil liked her. Well, she may, she existed, but it's not mentioned in the Bible. I mean, there was a there was that queen at some time in ancient Egypt. But that comes from extra-biblical sources that she may have been around during this time. That comes from a particular reading of who the king was, who the pharaoh was, which it never gives a name here for who the pharaoh was. And it Cecil, I say Cecil like we're buds. Cecil just made a decision that he thought it was a particular Ramses. And so if it was a particular Ramses, his wife was Queen Nefertiti. And so we'll put them in the movie. So it's not in it's not in the Bible. Here's some some things in the movies aren't always follow the Bible exactly, or even closely. Well, not he just made a major <laughs> he made a major strike against the livestock, and so he he wiped out a lot of the livestock, and then it was kind of they had begun to repopulate, rebuild. You know, one thing is we read this, and we read it like. In the morning, he killed the livestock. In the afternoon, he sent the frogs. Okay, it's not. There would time been been some time in here as well, and uh, and and the idea. I don't think the idea is that he purged all cattle from all areas of all. And the truth is, the Egyptians probably went in and grabbed the cattle of the Israelites and said, "They're ours now. We ain't got any cattle." And so, uh, that's a good question. It's a good observation. Yeah, yeah. There's some. There's some. You have to read into some some specifics there, but there was a major cattle loss, and then it kind of the firstborn. It got the the plagues. I mentioned this last week were spiritual in nature, and they went from very general, it seems, to more specific in the way they affected them. And so it went from that kind of general livestock to a firstborn, and that Passover that last night, the firstborn. Yeah. There would have been some time that would have elapsed. And, and you know, one of the things that we have to remember is, Charlie made a good point, and 
it's kind of mentioned over here as well. It, we don't have a timeline given in Scripture. And we, we read it, you sit down and you read seven plagues in 15 minutes. Well, that may have taken months. But we're reading the seven plagues, okay? Um, the biblical writers don't care about timelines for the most part. They just don't. We do. I mean, we our lives are based on timelines, right? I mean, we've got calendars, and I've got a calendar on my phone, on my computer. Deborah keeps a calendar for me. I've got a calendar at home that Susan helps keep. I've got calendars everywhere. I know my day. I can get up every morning and see what my day is like. I can look up my calendar and see what I did two months ago. We've got calendars in our house from the first year Eli was alive so that we know what we've done for the last seven years. And it's on a timeline. They didn't care. They just were writing. You have to remember, too, that they're telling these stories, and when it finally got time to write, they wrote as economically as possible. One like today when you could print it all out, and if you got you need 40 copies, you just print 40 copies on the copier, right? If you needed 40 copies of the book of Exodus, what you have to do? Write it. And that wasn't until years after this happened, so... That's important to remember. Yes, sir. God, God sent that. Yeah. yeah. That's not what the Bible says. When in doubt, trust the Bible over Cecil. Okay? Yes, ma'am, his head. There's preparation there. Yeah, Egyptians were the best at revisionist history. Okay? Now, we see that today where Republicans and Democrats, neither one, will ever admit any kind of defeat, right? Uh, today is National Signing Day in college football. Some of you don't know what that is or care. Some of you know what it is and care. But the truth is every coach is going to stand up today and tell you that they are really happy with the class that they've signed. They're not going to say, but we missed out on these four people. Well, the Egyptians didn't write down our slaves overthrew us and drown half our army in the Red Sea. They're not going to record that. And so there's not Egyptian history for t dating this. That's true, Marilyn. Other observations. Miss Betty, you had something back there? Or questions? You don't remember Aaron going up the mountain? But he went and got Aaron, didn't he? It's what God told him to do at least, right? Yeah, another thing that you see is Moses goes up and down Mount Sinai a little bit. You know, I mean, it's not the image of Moses leaves all the Israelites and he goes up once and has the time with God and comes back down. There's kind of some, you know, he goes up and God says, go tell the people to get ready, uh, which is where we are right now. We're right at that point. Get ready, bring Aaron, you know, get all this to happen. And then, the, you know, then it unfolds with the Ten Commandments come in, in later times. And so you got to be aware that watching the timeline here and we we'll discuss some of that next week miss betty because we really get into what happens with the the ten commandments and mount sinai and all that so all right i'm looking to see if anybody new has one okay miss hodges and then brenda yeah and here's the thing i looked all that up and could not find a reliable source that i was comfortable with to give you that full answer here's what the best biblical scholars do that I, the, the most respected. They just say all ten went with ten deities of Egypt. Now, I found a couple of websites that 
related at all, but I would not call them reputable websites. I don't know that they're, they are or they're not. Here's what, if you're really interested in that, just I'd do a Google search on um, plagues, Egypt, gods, and it should come up with that, okay? The second thing is, I looked at it, and y'all wouldn't recognize the name. I mean, you know, it's Hofni was This is directly against Hafnishach. Well, you know, but each, you know, there was a god over the Nile River. There was a god of of, of fertility. There was a god of, of, of medical stuff, and so the boils. There was a god of of um, of animals, like locusts, and of the crops. Sun God, you know, so the darkness. Sun God was one of their major gods. And the last one, uh, one of the things that really attacks on the last one is that Pharaoh was considered deity. And by nature, if Pharaoh is deity, his firstborn is the son of God. And so when he died, he attacked God directly. God attacked the Egyptian god directly. And that's why it was such a major thing. He, not, he just didn't kill a child. He killed our next god. Which sounds weird, I know, but that's the way Egyptians were. Alright, let's move from the plagues and the Red Sea and move to after that. Alright? Questions? Comments? Things you noticed after they leave? What kind of people? Oh, okay, Denise. I like that modern translation. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Women were not considered all that. Yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing. What is she shown doing? Leading the women and doing that in song in some way, right? And so there, there you do get that she may have been a uh, Moses heir women's minister. All right? I mean, this, this prophet. Now, when we move into the judges especially, we'll see a couple of women kind of stand up. You, you get in Joshua, you have women... But not in a formalized role to the judges, really. You have Deborah and some others. And so uh, it, it is an interesting thing that at this very important time in history that that they have this lady step up and sing a song and lead these women and kind of help them in their rejoicing and in their celebration. Um, but I don't know that her role extended much beyond that. I mean, Moses was undeniably the leader. Aaron was the spokesperson for the entire community, and then Miriam was, was helping out in that. What kind of people were the Israelites? They griped, didn't they? They griped all the time. They do have short-term memories. Yeah. Over and over and over again, God told them, right? They get to the desert. Well, they get to the Red Sea, and what do they say? Well, before they even get to the Red Sea, they get out there and they're not, you know, they're camping. Well, why'd you bring us out here? We could have died over there. We were doing better. We had pots full of meat. We had lots of meat. Forget the fact that we were working 18 hours a day, and having to make bricks on our own. We had pots of meat. Why don't you bring us out here? And so, God says, "We'll move on. Let's go to the Red Sea." And they get to the Red Sea, and well, here you go. Why do we have to? Wait? We're going to die right here. They get across the Red Sea. God causes the Red Sea to come back down on the Egyptian army. They get over, and what do they say? Well, we ain't got anything to drink. Right? What they said. It was, yeah. They just forget God's going to take care of them, and they, don't, they get something to drink, 
And then they said, what do they say? Well, you ain't got nothing to eat. Right? Now, I would get on to the Israelites a lot, except I have taken mission teams to places and where you eat and drink are important matters for all of us still. Especially Baptists, right, Alan? We still worry about where our next meal is coming from. I grew up in a family that on holidays and on just weekends, when you finished lunch is when you started talking about supper. Anybody been there? Okay. And so we, we can get on them a little bit, but not too much. For another reason I'll talk about in a minute. But some questions. I got a couple of questions about manna. What does the name manna mean? What is it? That's what they called their food. Hey, did you get some what is it today? <laughs> That's what manna means. It's a question. What is it? They didn't know what to call it. Now, here's the thing. Manna tasted good. I know when you read it and that dew would come, and when the dew left, there was this stuff on the ground. And they went out and harvested it and ate it, and you think, well, now that can't be good. But the truth is, it tells us. Now, remember, they were going to go to Canaan eventually. That was a land flowing with milk and honey. Honey was something that they all wanted, was something they longed for. And what does it say the manna tasted like? Honey. I get the idea it was like a honey graham cracker. Okay? Now, I know that you and me think I don't want to eat honey graham crackers for 40 years. They didn't have variety like we have variety. When we go to Brazil, those people don't care that they eat rice and beans every meal. You know why? Because they eat rice and beans for every meal. They don't know any different. They don't know you can go get Long John Silver's at lunch and McDonald's at supper, right? They don't know that Carol's got to come up with a menu that rotates eight different things or, you know, well, we're eating the same thing all the time. It's not like that. They just eat. Now, he didn't just give them manna. He gave them quail. They got some meat. They liked it. It was good. But they complained. All we got is manna. I mean, every day we wake up and the food is provided for us. Can you imagine walking out your door every morning and there's your food for the day? You ain't got to pay for it or work. You just walk out, there's a sack on your on your porch. Now, what were the conditions of the manna? Collect it and eat it, right? If you don't, you got maggots, right? A lot of people didn't know maggots made such an important appearance in the Bible, but they're there. If you don't, you're maggots. But a miracle of all miracles, on the sixth day, what do you do? kept it twice as much, and it didn't get maggots the next day. You depended on it. Miracle of miracles, there was some manna that they collected and kept that eventually went where? In the Ark of the Covenant, and it didn't grow maggots. Right? What was the purpose of the manna? Show God's provision for you, and the important part of that is on a daily basis. To live in the present moment with him not worried about yesterday not worried about tomorrow just enjoying the moment now kind of reminds me of Jesus when he says today has enough worries of its own don't worry about tomorrow so you have that portion of it the manna now one of my favorite passages we'll get to a little bit later it's in numbers 
is they get really mad about the manna. And they stop getting the quail like they want it. And so they keep they ask God, I just want some quail. And God tells Moses, I'm about to give them quail until it's running out of their noses. That's a quote. That's biblical. And he does. And then they get mad about having too much quail. These people just wanted to complain. Right? Aren't you glad none of those people exist anymore in the churches of America? On the sixth day, because they were following the Sabbath principle. Yeah. On the seventh day was a day of rest, no work to be done. And I know it doesn't seem like much work to go out there and pick up some pieces of bread, but he didn't want any work being done. And he wanted to show them he was going to take care of them. It was just another evidence. Yeah, yeah. That par- partially, yes. Uh, the question is, is that where Seventh-day Adventists get not working? We'll get into that when we get into the Ten Commandments, which is next week, tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. They, there, there are denominations that still think that you do nothing on the Sabbath. Jesus reinterpreted the Sabbath when he came. Uh, our Sabbath is not their Sabbath. Their Sabbath was Friday night at sundown till Saturday night at sundown. Uh, our Sabbath, if you consider a Sabbath, is generally considered Sunday. But it's not a Sabbath for me. You know, it's my hardest work day is Sunday. And so uh, you have to think about it in different terms um, but that was that was the thing and, we, and we'll talk about that a little bit more next week no no go ahead Marilyn. they used it I mean they well I mean they you have to consider they had some livestock but you also have to consider that the, the estimates are there were two million of them no matter how many livestock you got that's going to run out at some point I mean, this is also one of those cases when we kind of think, you know, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And we we think of reading through this like this happened in four or five days, the Red Sea and Sinai and all that, when it, it took some time. And they, they you know, they used what they could, but they, they had to feed, they had to feed a, a huge amount of people. I think one of the things that's often misunderstood in fact, I was reading a book prospectus for some for a lady. I was writing a book on clothing in the in the uh, Bible, and she talks about the Israelites left with nothing. That's not true, is it? I think that's one of those points that we miss sometimes. It says they were just supposed to go ask their Egyptian neighbors, "Hey, give me your stuff," and what does it say? They gave it. Now, here's the truth. By that time, the Egyptian people were ready to get those Israelites out of the land. We don't want any more frogs. We don't want any more locusts. We don't want any more death. We want you out. So here, take it. Get out. All right? Other questions in Exodus before we move on? Diane, did I get all your questions? Sure, why not? What do you got? Yeah. Oh, the Passover. Yes. The same reason he asked us to be baptized. The same reason he asked us to be obedient. It's a sign of obedience. Baptism doesn't save us. It's what we believe. It's what I believe. But God still requires it of us. Why? Because it's an act of obedience. And so it was it was showing that the Israelites trusted that he was going to deliver them. Because you have to remember, Moses trusted that God could deliver them most of the time. 
But the Israelites weren't real keen on what was happening, were they? Remember at the beginning of this, they said, would you please quit? Quit talking to Pharaoh. Quit challenging him. Let's just, we're fine. And God wouldn't let Moses rest. And so it was a test uh, to say, are you willing to do this? Okay? And I, do, I don't want to there's some major significance in, this, in this, these passages. And that's why I'm okay spending some time here. The rest of the Old Testament will point to these passages we read this week as the pivotal moment in the history of Israel. The Passover is the Old Testament crucifixion and resurrection. When we think about the New Testament... We think of it all hinging on that story of Jesus. Now, there are four different tellings, but on the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's where everything hinges. The Old Testament hinges on these chapters of the Passover. Now, we know that it's still important in the New Testament. Why? Because the Last Supper that we'll celebrate, the Lord's Supper, on Sunday is a Passover meal. Jesus said he wanted to celebrate Passover. What's interesting in that when you get to that is what's the biggest element of the Passover meal in the Old Testament? What, are they, what does Moses spend time the most telling them about? The lamb, right? Choosing the lamb. When you get to the New Testament, what does Jesus say about the lamb at his Passover meal? It's not even mentioned. Why? Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb. Now he's not, he doesn't mention the Lamb. He, he mentions the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. What we know is wine. All right? And so you have those two elements, but the Lamb is obviously in the New Testament Jesus. And so on the night before he is to be crucified, the most important night of his ministry, he recreates this moment. Now, there are some scholars that believe that Jesus celebrated the Passover a day early with his disciples because he knew what was going to happen the next day, and it was so important to him to make the connection between the two that he celebrated it with them before everybody else would have celebrated it. Because typically Passover was celebrated on the Sabbath. Okay? Now, how do we know that Jesus didn't celebrate the Passover on the Sabbath? That time. Because they had to take him off the cross and get him down because the Sabbath was coming. And so there are some that think that it's such a pivotal moment that Jesus wanted to celebrate that on that night before. Okay, That's not all scholars. They, they say that in that time that you could do it kind of either night, but... There are some. All right? Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Okay? Here's, here's, my answer. here's my answer to that, okay? The simple answer is God gives allows all things that happen. Here's, if you remember last week, and the question is uh, the, the part in there where Moses would perform a miracle and Pharaoh's magicians would perform a miracle. And it says in there that they were given the ability to be able to do that. Turn the Nile into blood. Different. You, you remember there were the first three or four they're able to duplicate pretty good, and then they can't do them as well, and then they can't do them at all. 
If you remember last week, I said that we must look at Exodus, these these chapters of the plagues, as spiritual warfare. It goes back to Leslie talking about, we were talking about the God's battle. And where we see it, or the Egyptians saw it, as a battle between God and the Egyptian gods, I think it's better for us to understand it as a battle between God and demonic forces. Because it doesn't say that they kind of duplicated. It says they were able to do these powerful things. And I think this is one of those overlooked passages in Scripture, and you don't see a lot of scholars talking about it, but I I think it is, that is overlooked in the fact that there were demonic forces that were working through these magicians, sorcerers of Pharaoh. And it was a power encounter between God and and the forces of evil. Now, if you say it that way, of course it was between God and the forces of evil, but I mean between demonic forces. And that each time God kind of ups the ante on what he's doing. Okay, turning water into, you know, into blood, you know, do you can give some power to do that. But then when he gets up there to killing livestock and the locust and the darkness and the death, they don't even try. He doesn't, doesn't give any indication they tried. You know, it's like after the fourth or fifth one, they just kind of go, we can't do this stuff anymore. And so that's my answer to that. I, I think that it is real demonic forces that are working through those sorcerers to perform these miracles. It is. It is spiritual warfare for sure. Now, those names that they may have been calling on may have been whatever it was. Those Egyptian god names, but behind them were those fallen angels that were warring against God in the heavenlies. Still are. Okay, Diane up top. Yeah, the yeast. Here's the thing. Those of you that cooked, what's what? What does yeast require to work? Time. Right. It takes time for it to rise. The point was to show them that. Even though it was 14 days, even though there was time of preparation, that they cried out for 400 years, and in two weeks they were gone. It was quick. And so the Passover meal was to remind them that not only did God deliver us, but he delivered us quickly. And so the reason there's no yeast in the bread is because we don't even have time for it to rise. God is delivering us. Okay? Does that answer, Diane? Okay. All right, let's go to Matthew. Y'all are going to make me into an Old Testament scholar. You know that. We spend about 40 minutes in the Old Testament every week. That's all right. It, it, let's talk about Matthew. What's going on in Matthew this these weeks? Stuff you notice, questions you have. We're in Matthew 18 through 23, basically. We don't get all the way through 23, but we get a good ways through it. That's good. Somebody else. Things you notice, things that stood out. What's that? Yeah, they, there's still some griping going on. That's right. Not a lot of change in God's people. Their disciples are griping. You see the conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees increasing. Some interesting teaching in there. Anything in particular that stood out? A lot of stories that you're familiar with, but maybe you saw them in a different way. Yes. There are 12 apostles because of the 12 tribes. Yes. That's 
Jesus never says that, but that's the general understanding of the significance is that the 12 disciples or 12 apostles, there are lots of disciples, but 12 apostles. The 12 apostles were um, directly related to the number 12 tribes, which we came, we just read about at the end of, of Genesis. There was some overlap. Uh, Mrs. Joan asked if all the Sadducees, Pharisees, teachers of the law, scribes, uh, priests, if they were all separate groups or they overlapped. They overlapped some. The, there were um, Sadducees and Pharisees that were priests, that were scribes. Uh, Sadducees were really people determined by this one theological teaching from the Pharisees. And the theological teaching was that the question about whether or not there were was life after death, resurrection. Um, and uh, one of the things that always impresses me when I read this is just how good Jesus was at turning questions around on people. You know, when they come to him and say, what about, you know, we? I told you that we would, there would be this passage. Well, what about the brother that dies and then his brother marries and then they, they die and then, you know, it gives this elaborate hypothetical situation and Jesus said, well, there's no marriage in heaven. But you're, why are you even asking? You don't even believe in resurrection. So let's get to the heart of the matter here. You know, it's like, let's get past all this stuff. Now, aren't you glad there aren't people today that ask you questions when they really mean something else? He got right to the heart of it. So, There's some tough teaching in this passage. Some real tough teaching. Uh, yes, Mr. Cordell. Yeah. That, that's the main point of that, yes, is Jesus is looking out and, he's, and he tells a couple of parables in there that kind of gives this impression that the Pharisees are either outside the faith or they're not as good as they think they are. There's the one parable where he says, what about the two sons? And one says, I'll go and do the work, and I don't. And the other says, I won't go do the work, but he does. Which one followed? And they say the one that said he wouldn't but did. And he says, that's like the tax collectors. Well, the point there is, the other son is like, you. You've said you're going to do the work of God, but you're not. And then he says, and don't get mad that all these tax collectors, remember their biggest accusation was, Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors, with the sinners. And he says, just because they've come to the party late, doesn't mean they won't get the same reward. Now, here's the truth for us, okay? Most of us in this room grew up in church, have been a part of church for a long time, have established roots in the church, and sometimes it's easy when you do that to talk about what you deserve because of your years of service to the Lord. I've been here since 8 o'clock in the morning working. And here comes this Johnny-come-lately that got here at 3.30. There's no reason he deserves the same amount of pay as I do. Now, let me just ask this question. This parable that he describes where workers show up at 8 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and the workers that show up at 5 o'clock and the bell rings at 5.15 get the same amount of pay as the 8 o'clock workers. Is that fair? No. If you go by our world's understanding of fairness, it's not. But Jesus basically says, why do you care? He says, if you're the 8 o'clock worker and you work for a full day's wage and you get a full day's wage, why do you care what somebody else gets? And what you really want to say is, but we do. Right? 
because that happens. We do. And it's not just work. It's everything in life. Well, they're just a Johnny come lately. They just they, they got born with a silver spoon in their mouth or never had to work a day in his life. A parable that goes along with that comes out of Luke when this one son goes off and parties a lot and comes home and the dad throws a big party for him and the other brother says, I've been the one here working. Why haven't you done anything for me? Jesus' whole point there is it ain't about us. It's all grace. It doesn't matter what time you got to work or what work you've done. Your salvation and your reward, ultimate reward in heaven, eternity with Him is based on grace and His decision, not ours. Ben, all the way in the back. Chapter 22, Matthew, verse 14. I will explain it if I can. No. There have been there have been volumes written on that verse. Yeah. Um I could explain it one of about eight ways and seven and a half of them would get me in trouble. Uh so now the point of that parable, I think and what you have to do is you have to take it in context of the parable. Okay? The point of the parable is that God invites a lot of people. There are people that will try to take verse 14 and make it sound like, well, God chooses a certain number, and that's it. But that's not what the parable teaches. The parable teaches that he invited some people, and what happened? They didn't come, so what did he do? He went and invited some more. Now, when he gets there, some of them get there, they're not dressed appropriately, and they get thrown out. Now, what does that mean? We get to heaven, boy, we didn't do our work. That means you get thrown out. No, it means that they came, but they didn't come in the proper way. But here's the key. For those out there that that are under a particular theological system that would say that this verse proves that God chooses some and not others, what they miss is the whole dependence in the parable is on whether or not they accept the invitation. And that lots are invited, but few come or chosen. Now, the word there is chosen, which if I were writing the Bible, I would have put a different word there. But here's the thing. I didn't write the Bible. And sometimes I think God put words there intentionally to make us think and interact and talk. I think maybe I got away with a half of an explanation that won't get me in too much trouble. Because I'm not in a Reformed church. Kathy asked about the part where they're not dressed properly. The simple answer is, he doesn't give an explanation there for what that means. And part of the problem that I get into sometimes is trying to interpret every part of a parable and making it mean something. You could talk about there that, well, they didn't come in the proper way. They didn't accept. I mean, you know, but at this point, the accepting of Christ, baptism, all that stuff wasn't in line yet. It's just relationship. But, it, I mean, it's obvious that they came in not knowing. They didn't come. The point is they came, but they weren't prepared, whatever that means. That doesn't answer your question, I know. But that's it's, they weren't prepared for their meeting with him. Oh, I was going to say, I don't. Uh, you say that. I don't see that. It just says they went out. But, I mean, that, 
in that day and time, it would have been a general rule that kind of, here's the expected dress. Uh, this is what you need to wear. If you don't have it, we'll get it for you kind of thing. Alan, you were going to add to that? Yeah, it would have been the kind of thing that would have elicited a gasp from the crowd. They didn't show up wearing what they were supposed to? Kind of like it used to be when you wore white after Labor Day or whatever, right? Before Easter or whatever, you walk into church, <gasps> did she wear white? Doesn't she know? I mean, you know, it would have been that kind of audible gasp. So, yeah, I think that I think the, the parable as a whole is obviously relating to the Day of Judgment. And I think it does go along with the fact that there will be some on the Day of Judgment that fully think they're getting into heaven because of the religious stuff they've done, but they haven't closed themselves in Christ's righteousness. And so when they get to the throne of God, they're going to be pushed aside as goats instead of sheep. And so I think that that's the case. In a few weeks, we're going to talk on Sunday morning pretty intently about how religion can be the worst thing in the world to lead you away from Christ. Church can be one of the worst things in the world to lead you away from Christ. The fig is one of the the fig leaf uh, story Marilyn asked about where Jesus goes and curses the fig leaf. I mean, I know the point of the story. I know the point is that if you're unfruitful, I've said in here that we need to be fruit inspectors and that if there's not fruit prevalent in your life, then you need to check your relationship with the Lord. But that doesn't make it just... It, the way it's written, I think, is what makes it seem like he's just kind of petulant there. That he's just, he wants some fruit and it doesn't give him fruit, so he curses the whole tree. Which I don't think is what is intended there. It's just the idea that, the idea behind it is that this tree is not doing the one thing it's created to do. Yeah, it, there's a, you know, I mean, there, there are other passages in Scripture uh, in the New Testament, particularly in the epistles, a couple of passages, Fruit of the Spirit's one, where. The idea is given that you ought to produce, that that, uh, that when you're you're living for the Lord, your life ought to produce fruit. And that he was kind of giving a visual example to the apostles that this tree, its one purpose in life is to produce figs. And it's not producing figs. So it has no purpose in life. And that we as followers of Jesus, our purpose is to glorify him and to become more like him. And when we're not doing that, we have no reason for being. And so we have to evaluate whether we're in relationship with him. Ben, Matthew 21, 23 through 27. Go ahead. Yeah. The question is, why did he not explain to them where he got his power? Um, He does. I mean, in a roundabout way, he kind of does because he... He basically says, I get my power from the same place John the Baptist did. Mine's just greater. And so when he tricks them into that whole thing where they realize, uh-oh, we got to do something about him, it must come from heaven, then he's kind of saying mine comes from... I mean, to not give them an answer was to give them an answer. Jesus knew his time was closing. If he would have said right there, my, my power comes directly from God, that time ends immediately. Well, no, he, in Matthew, when he heals people, he's told them not to tell anybody. We've had the messianic secret. Don't let anybody know. By this time, I mean, we're, you know, that happens, that's the last thing in Matthew that happens before the triumphal entry. So he, he doesn't care at this point. Who knows or what's going on. Enough has happened. He's, he's ready to announce himself to the world. He's about to march into Jerusalem on the donkey. 
which is kind of an oxymoron to march in on a donkey, but he's coming in on a donkey, people shouting hallelujah, praise to the king, uh, hail son of David, Hosanna. And so he's okay receiving that moment. All right. Anything else in Matthew? Some of these we'll hit again as we go through the other Gospels. All right, let's go to Psalms and Proverbs real quickly. Anything there? Can you tell Solomon had trouble with women? Solomon was the wisest of all men, and yet he failed in his relationships with women. You read the book of Proverbs, and it seems like every day for the last month and three days, his warning has been don't get involved with an adulteress, right? Or another man's wife. Uh, toast and bread are comparisons. Anything in the Psalm? Psalm. We started with Psalm 23 and went to Psalm 27. Anything in there you noticed, maybe you hadn't seen before? All right. It's almost time to go anyways. Next week, we're going to see the Ten Commandments. Let me tell you this. Um, I'm going to give you a homework assignment besides reading. Okay? Rewrite the Ten Commandments as if you were telling a child what they really mean. Okay? Don't, some of you Sunday school teachers, go find your Sunday school material from a few months ago and do that. Because we've learned them so much that we, well, what does that mean? So I want you to rewrite them as if you were giving them to a child, and I'm going to ask you for them next week.